we don't direct our march towards Trump, but we direct our march towards the people for whom showing up actually matters. Directing the march to the corporations, directing the march to the media, directing the march to the allies who might need a backbone, but not to Trump, but to those who enable him. Because at the end of the day, we need to create the type of desertions and defections that lead Trump all alone. Hello, welcome to The Resistors, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Faith. On today's show, we talk with Rashad Robinson. Rashad is the executive director of Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization. Color of Change has been at work for many years to create a more human and less hostile world for Black people and all people. The organization has impacted the stories of the Gina Six, the firings of Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, and so many other of the most difficult defining moments of our nation's recent history. Before Color of Change, Rashad worked with GLAAD, the Right to Vote campaign, and Fair Vote. Rashad, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to the resistors. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Color of Change got its start back in the George W. Bush years, specifically in response to the failure of the federal government to protect black people in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. Can you talk about how your history prepared you for this Trump era? Well, yeah. I mean, in so many ways, um, Color of Change grew up out of an uprising, similar to the uprisings that are happening in the street in the aftermath of Trump. And the uprising of Katrina was a very particular moment. I wasn't at Color of Change at the time, but um, I still remember those images of black people on their roofs demanding the government do something and being left to die. And the images seared of um, people being maligned by the media, um, attacked by their government, and um, exploited by major corporations. And all of that was happening um, while these issues that we knew so much about were right in front of us. Geographic segregation, generational poverty, the impacts of what we've done to our planet and our justice system and our education system. But at the heart of it for James Rucker and Van Jones, who founded Color of Change, the heart of it was that no one was nervous about disappointing black people. The government, the media, corporations. And when institutions are not nervous about disappointing you, um, you can't get into the magical thinking that you can create some sort of report um, with a, like, particular data set and that's going to solve your problems or that you can have a, a, a lawyer go into court and that alone is going to solve your problems or you can create an app. Um, you have to deal and contend with power and the lack of power. And so a new infrastructure in that moment, Color of Change was born with a single email to about a thousand people who then sent emails to other people and built campaigns over time. And the campaigns you just talked about from Gina Six to Glenn Beck were all part of these moments where we respond to something real, gave people something strategic to do, and in the process, tried to create the opportunity to to build wins with this understanding that when um, black people, when oppressed people win, um, they win victories for everyone. You mentioned the single email. The You started the very uh, early days that Facebook and Twitter existed. So there really wasn't black Twitter. There wasn't mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter hashtag. Well, it was before Are- Twitter, actually. And it was, um, it was in the era when black folks who were on social media were on MySpace. And so the MySpace Color of Change page, I wasn't here at the time, but I, I know this from the archives, the MySpace Color of Change page was much more, a much more active and engaged space 
um, as much as you could be sort of active and engaged on MySpace. Um, then, I, I had them at MySpace profile. Yeah, then for, lots of glitter. Yeah, yeah, lots of like graphics and moving images and whatever you could sort of like figure out in the moment. But um, the MySpace page, the the role of black radio um, in efforts like Gina Six, uh, and we've even seen sort of um, how much that's changed in the last several years with media consolidation and very few stations now being owned by black folks. Uh, but there was a different media landscape at that time. So now you have, I think, more than a million members? Yeah, we have a little over 1.2 million. And how do you engage them now? Is it mostly via email or Facebook and Twitter? So we think about how we engage our membership is through email, and then we move them from um, online engagement to offline. We have this um, uh, model that we've developed called Respond, Build, Pivot, and Scale. Respond to moments a moment happens out in the world, build energy and build engagement through maybe asking people to make phone calls, working to sort of fight for that thing that people have seen, the, 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 the viral video of a police killing, the, the um, issues in Flint, um, trying to get justice in that moment. But then pivoting those people along the way to the systemic underpinnings of why we're in the problem, pushing for um, what we think about as rule changes. Sometimes the rules are written rules, sometimes they're unwritten rules. But really thinking about how do we build power? How do we um, um, change the landscape so that we're not just playing that sort of game at the carnival, whack-a-mole, where you hit something and something else pops up, but you're responding and consistently building the type of energy that changes the rules. I've heard you speak about storytelling. What role does storytelling play in the work of Color of Change? Well, storytelling is so important to both drawing people in, illustrating the concrete harm of an issue, and so that you're not just using sort of slogans or jargon, but you're really bringing people in and helping them understand what's concretely at stake. Um, you're also um, trying to build common ground, trying to find ways that you can bring people who may not be impacted by the issue um, in. You know, there's... Um, not a unified, shared black narrative in this country, but there is a lot of things that we could send out to our membership and say, yup, y'all see this? We know. Got it. Move on, right? And, um, and there's a way in which there is some aspects of shared unity that connects our communities in ways that many other communities don't have in this country, and which is increasingly changing as new generations come, as um, the black population becomes more diverse because of immigration. But... Um, through storytelling, we can not just tap into this sort of shared narrative, but build a narrative that other people can connect with, thereby sort of building a chorus that's much bigger and much more able to um, force the institutions, the decision makers, to have to deal with us. Did Donald Trump's election surprise you? Not really. It you know, maybe I would wonder if it was one of those. Yup, you know <laughs> these things that you know the legacy of yeah. white supremacy in this country. I I I never um, I have never um, like been one of those folks that um, didn't take Donald Trump seriously. And the quick story I will tell on that is about six years ago when I started at Color of Change. Uh, one of the first campaigns I launched was the campaign to go after the Celebrity Apprentice, NBC. 
And we called on NBC to, um, to deal with the Celebrity Apprentice and advertisers. We also were going after the two black celebrities who were on the Celebrity Apprentice at the time. And we like tried to get a bunch of other progressive and civil rights groups to join us in the campaign. No one would join us. Everyone was like, don't you guys have better things to worry about? Um, you know, you like, you know, your first, Rashad, you want to make your first campaign coming from GLAD, like a pop culture campaign. Um, and I remember like people really not just looking down on it, but sort of like, um, letting me know that it was sort of not the real work. And, uh, the rules and norms of society, what's acceptable and not acceptable is not, um, does not come from Washington. Um, it, 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 Washington follows that. And, um, and so Donald Trump's sort of victory for me had, um, had already been sort of, I could see it bubbling up in many other things that were happening in the larger culture, the rise of white nationalists and white supremacists, the sort of, um, it being, um, legitimized through these folks being able to speak on college campuses and getting book deals. The ways in which we had, um, the country had expanded what was part of the acceptable range of political debate. Um, you know, headlines at the bottom of like the CNN blotter where you were like, um, are Jews people? Um, you know, but like, n- they were asking the question because someone else asked the question, right? And the fact that, like, they would even put that on the air, right? right? Like, these things were, like, out in the air in a way where, like, more and more things were being allowed to be acceptable that were previously unacceptable. Which is what we're wrestling with right now with Trump as president. And, yeah, I mean, the loss of sort of our market squares of ideas, you know, the, the, there's a power to the Internet and being able to democratize our participation, but it also makes, it also gives people the license to say and do things without having to be publicly accountable. Um, and so it has, um, nothing is all good, right? And, and it has its, its limitations. And that's definitely one. You compete for policy change on the terrain of mass media and culture. Trump, of course, has totally transformed that terrain. Uh, how has that impacted your work? Well, it's impacted our work that, you know, getting on CNN and MSNBC is not as useful as it once was. It's not like, you know, like we're not pushing our to get on in every story. Um, finding and building our base um, reaching our base in new ways, creating um, content that reaches people um, in new ways, thinking about data and analytics in new ways. This is all, like, I think important for us, especially in this Trump era, where um, the trust in the news industry, the trust in mainstream news has gone down, and, and, and news is less of a place that you can sort of contend with ideas, convince people, to come with you on things. We've also really moved our focus in terms of our entertainment work and, and media work to Hollywood. We have an office in Hollywood, um, a couple of staffers that work out there. We spend a lot of time in writers' rooms, working behind the scenes, trying to pitch and place storylines. We have a big report coming out later this year with UCLA that looks at um, the diversity of about 150 TV writers' rooms and then tracks it back to three different themes 
Um, one is when racism is shown on TV. Is it individual or structural? Two is the pathology that oftentimes surrounds black families on TV that leads to what we think is the makers takers framework that leads to the cuts to the social safety net leads to people believing some people deserve and some people don't. And then the final theme is, um, when the criminal justice system is shown on TV, it's oftentimes shown as infallible. Someone holds a hair up to a light. And then they say, I know who did it when we know DNA evidence is much more complicated. District attorneys and police officers are always shown as the hero. Even when they sort of step outside of what they're supposed to be doing, you're like, oh, you know, last season we found out that their wife doesn't really love them or their partner died or whatever it is. And they're humanized in a way where sort of like each episode you get a new criminal, black, brown, or increasingly Muslim South Asian person who's like the guest star who comes on. And whether they did it or they didn't, you spent a whole hour seeing them through the lens of, of a criminal. And we've got to deal with those shows. We've got to deal with the diversity of those writers' rooms. And we've got to deal with the fact that um, while we will watch the Oscars and the Emmys and we will see great speeches from celebrities on the stage, writers, producers, about the, administ- the administration, maybe wearing resist pins, talking about speaking up and speaking out. And all of that is great. Um, but actually, what are they doing in their day-to-day jobs? And, and what role has Hollywood played in creating the landscape and the climate that we are currently living in that has allowed for Trump to grow? You had a lot to do with the firing of Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly and mm-hmm. from Fox, and I'd like to hear more about that. But I am thinking back to an earlier time, earlier in the history of Color of Change. You went after Cops, the TV show. Mm-hmm. So Cops, um, this was a really early campaign um, during my tenure. And, um, and so Cops, you know, was, um, had been on the air for about 25 years. And we were just, we were in the middle of this moment around... Um, Trayvon Martin, where people were speaking out in new ways. The hashtag Black Lives Matter had been um, formed by Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi and, and Patrice Cullors, and, and they had moved the, that that out. And we had a framework. We were talking about it. Color of Change was talking a lot about the role of like representations on TV, the the hoodie, um, and sort of what that what that represented. And then. Um, you know, we, we, we saw that, you know, the TV show Cops was up for renewal and we were like, you know, we should probably launch a campaign to push back. And it was one of our early Hollywood campaigns, um, at Color of Change. And we spent some time behind the scenes trying to push Fox to cancel before we launched. Then we launched the campaign, having our members, about 50,000 of our members sign petitions. Um, then we um, sort of worked to identify a set of their advertisers um, leading into the season. Um, it was really hyper-visible at that moment around people talking about criminal justice and accountability. Our conversations with Fox were so interesting because they said to us at one point, um, you know, we'll be, you know, maybe we could diversify the um, people we're showing. Um, and we were like thinking, well, if... Like, diversifying means showing more poor white people. Like, that is actually not interesting to us at all. If diversifying means, like, cops on Wall Street or, um, or in, you know, Capitol Hill and showing where, like, crime happens that actually really impacts our lives, I'm, like, maybe down for that. But we then, you know, took out some billboards and, and 
and full page ads in the trades in Hollywood, like Variety and, and um, Hollywood Reporter, those papers actually rejected our ads um, because Fox sort of got around and Fox was a much bigger advertiser than we were. Yeah. And um, that actually led to a lot more uh, earned media as a result of the rejection. We had a big um, protest planned in front of 21st Century Fox like two days before they were supposed to announce whether or not they were going to um, um, renew the show. And um, we had heard that they were going to renew the show and we were planning this protest and we I got a lot of local folks, ministers, others. And, you know, and actually, it's kind of dramatic because I was in the car heading to the airport to go to L.A. Um, for the protest um, when we got the call that they had canceled the show. Um, and so that show had been on for 25 years. It was the first reality show. It was actually bought by Rupert Murdoch during a writer strike when they were trying to, like, fill the time on the air. They actually paid that ska band that did the opening yeah. song, Bad Boys, Bad Boys, What You Gonna Do? Um, about $2,500. Um, so a lot of people got ripped off <sighs> um, in the sort of theme of this, like, um, kind of porn around going into poor communities and um, looking at the impacts of basically the war on drugs, the um, poverty, what we've done to tax policy in this country, and and showing that for people as entertainment on Saturday night. And, and now that's back in form of official policy. We've got Jeff Sessions as our attorney general wants to bring back mandatory minimums and uh, get rid of the consent decrees. He wants to bring back a whole lot of things that um, had been were, I thought had been moved outside of like right. kind of like the basic range of the Republican philosophy. So this is not just, and I'm not saying the Republicans have been great on criminal justice in recent years, even as they've talked about it. They've been horrible, but they've moved a set of things outside of their debate. And Jeff Sessions, um, Confederate Jeff, as I like to call him, is operating from a, a very different point in time. And I believe that if... Um, if he could bring back slavery and Jim Crow, he would. It seems so. I mean, that's. I mean, yeah. This is. I mean, this is. This is who he is. Um, this is what he stood for for his career. Um, we should make no mistake about it. Um, if Je if 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 um, if Jeff Session could flip a switch tomorrow and have black people um, in the back of the butts, have um, our immigration policies be one that is whites only, that would be Jeff. That would be what Jeff Session did. Are, is Color of Change working on the so-called Voter Fraud Commission? So we are working to both um, push back against the commission, but also work in states around the country to push for more affirmative um, policies around the right to vote, more expansions to the right to vote in this framework. In some ways, you know, if um, if Pence and um, and Trump and Kobach are going to put this commission on and, and put out lies, we're going to put out something aspirational about what our democracy should look like. And then we're going to hold corporations and enablers. I mean, this is part of our larger strategy since the election, is that um, I believe firmly that we don't direct our march towards Trump, but we direct our march towards the people for whom showing up actually matters. Directing the march to the corporations, directing the march to the media, directing the march to the allies who might need a backbone, but not to Trump, but to those who enable him. Because at the end of the day, we need to create the type of desertions and defections that lead Trump all alone. Um, and so I fundamentally believe that, you know, 
There are far too many mediators on the left. Um, we're getting less and less, and that's good, but, we, but there were far too many. I believed fundamentally from the beginning of the election that 5% of our movement should be mediators. About 65% of us should be fighters. Fighters hold the line. They don't give an inch. They are pushing back against um, and holding account enablers. It, it speaks to why we took on Uber. Um, it speaks to why we're taking on credit card companies that process white supremacists. Um, fees, why we took on Bill O'Reilly. And then the final 30% um, are winners. And I don't mean winning an argument or winning a debate, but I mean winning um, real victories for people. Victories at the local level that actually make people's lives better. Because far too long, um, the left has had a rhetorical conversation about why we make people's lives better, but not always a real concrete one. And, and that needs to change. And so um, we're Actions, not words. Um, giving back the check to the to the polluter, not just talking about climate. Um, showing up to have Thanksgiving dinner with Walmart workers, not just talking about working um, working people. Um, changing the fundamental way that we we do our work. It, for me, um, has to be critical as part of any resistance movement. It gets us from resistance where we're at right now, which is good but not enough, to opposition. And an opposition movement is a movement that can win. An opposition movement are movements that can govern. It seems a brilliant strategy because Trump, people like Trump sessions clearly are not persuadable, but there are a lot of people that have enabled them to be where they are. Can you walk us through how you pull that lever of corporate? You started talking about it with cops, but kind of what is the process? A corporation's messing up or they join Trump's business council, they're validating him. Mm-hmm. What do you do to engage them? And, and then what happens after that? Does it happen quickly or does it take a while? It doesn't always happen that quickly. There's an infrastructure that has to be laid. Um, sometimes people experience it as a petition um, and they think, and then something happens and then they think, oh, like that's all you have to do. And I see other organizations launching similar petitions and not having the same success. But the vast majority of our of our corporate campaign work starts with private conversations. They start with a letter back and forth, then it gets to a phone call where we're now trying to channel for them what a public campaign might look like. Also trying to figure out what their arguments are so that we can um push back. Trying to figure out what they um if they have a reasonable argument, maybe maybe we're off base. Maybe we're accusing them of something that's not fair. Um, trying to be in a very reasonable space with corporations to understand that there are a whole set of decision makers inside of these institutions that have families, that have communities that they're a part of, and that and that part of what we're trying to do is understand the dynamics for how they got to this decision and try to figure out what it might take to move them. And at some point. In that, if the corporation decides that they're not going to make a change, and we believe that we still have to push forward, we um, create some sort of ultimative in terms of, like, here's the timeline, we're going to go public. And then we go public. And when we go public, we try to go public in really big ways. We also talk about the fact that we've tried to engage behind the scenes. We highlight corporations and institutions that have done the right thing by moving um, we move our members up a ladder of engagement from starting with um, um, a petition to making phone calls. We do a lot of work to try to engage employees of the corporation who may not be at the C-suite decision-making level. 
um, everything from geo-targeted ads to organizing um, them through other ways like you know, meeting them after work and other things, trying to find ways that we build um, energy inside the corporation um, to push on the decision-making class. All of that, from our perspective, is to create a climate where the decision-makers feel like they have no other choice but to um, move on from what they were doing. You took on Alec. Could you talk, tell us who they are yeah. and what you did? So Alec is a 40-year-old um, right-wing policy shop, 40-plus-year-old right-wing policy shop. They were founded by Paul Weirich, who's the same guy who founded the Heritage Foundation. And what they do is they bring corporations and um, state legislators together behind closed doors to write legislation that's going to be helpful for the state legislators. I mean, it's going to be helpful for the state legislators terms of politics and helpful to the corporations. And they move that into states around the country. They were so successful that ALEC would sometimes introduce laws. For the law, the ALEC um, members would forget to take the heading off of it, and it would still pass. Uh-huh. Um, and so they were behind everything from the discriminatory voter ID law, that, you know, the one that says you can vote with your gun license but not your student ID. They were behind the um, Arizona-style immigration law. They were behind so many of these laws that have really hurt people. And we found out that 98% of Alex's money came from corporations. Corporations who every single day said, buy our product or use our services. And these corporations would... Um, go and be part of ALEC because it allowed them to move legislation behind the scenes, not in public. And so um, we built out a campaign where we were trying to counteract the discriminatory voter ID laws, recognizing that we could put out as many petitions as we like, we could put out as many um, uh, calls to action, but these were being passed in Tea Party states with Tea Party state legislators and governors Nothing was going to um, move. And so we started out behind the scenes with these corporations. We picked about 15 of the 100 um, Alec companies, big companies, public facing, that had a relationship with the black community, that like um, advertised on black radio, black TV, that like had Black History Month programming. All of that um, to sort of call out a hypocrisy. And we would go back and forth with these companies. We would send them a letter and then finally we'd get on the phone and they said, we give a little to the left and we give a little to the right. And we'd say, that is great, but there's not two sides to black people voting. By the final call, they would get their senior level black person on the phone with me and I would get on the phone and we'd go back and <laughs> forth. And then um, we'd sort of agree to like disagree. Um, so a couple of corporations left behind the scenes. While we were doing that, we had a campaign that we went out to our membership that said, stop corporate-funded voter suppression. And we went out to our membership, but we didn't name the corporations. And so we were channeling for these corporations that this campaign, at some point, could focus on them, but not yet. And while we had that campaign out there, other organizations joined us. Our friends at Credo, um, in particular, joined us very early on and really directed people to our campaign. So we built up numbers on this campaign, and it was great. And then um, um, Trayvon Martin happened. And um, it was a tragedy. We deeply engaged. Our membership helped the hoodie rallies around the country. We created a short code where people were texting um, to a platform, and we were registering to vote. All sorts of different things were happening. But then we found out that the um, uh, Stand Your Ground law was an ALEC law. Oh written by Walmart, and um, passed... Which sells guns. Which is the largest seller of guns. Okay. Um, 
passed in states around the country. And so now we had to figure out how to pivot. So this goes back to what I was saying about respond, build, pivot, and scale. Now we've got to pivot to the systemic thing. And so now we've got about 300,000 people on a petition around justice for Trayvon, about 100,000 people on stop corporate-funded voter suppression. And we had Pepsi that pulled out behind the scenes. First company was Coca-Cola um, that we decided to go public on. And so we gave Coca-Cola 48 hours. We showed them what the website was going to look like, the platform. We said, this is what we're going to be saying about all of our communication. Coca-Cola, 48 hours passes. They don't leave Alec. We um, then start having our members mobilize. Five, um, five hours later, Coca-Cola calls us and says, um, we've had enough of your members calling us. We <laughs> five are, hours. Five hours. We are leaving Alec. But a lot of that was because we had spent time behind sure. the scenes cultivating, going back and forth with Coca-Cola. This campaign didn't come out of anywhere. They were people inside of Coca-Cola who we knew were on our side, trying to push our side, and we knew there were people who weren't on our side. And, um, and we helped the people on our side inside the corporation be more powerful um, once we went public. Color of Change works at the intersections. I wonder if you could talk about how you work in solidarity with queer women's immigrant, undocumented, mm -hmm. Muslim, disabled, and other communities that have been targeted by Trump and his administration. Well, you know, I always say that black people are like, black people live at the intersection of many different experiences. Black people are queer and immigrant and women and disabled. And, and, um, and so, so to the extent that, um, I don't really think about um, it as um, us working on behalf of other communities, but on behalf of working on behalf of black people. Um, that That's sort of how I approach it. Not allyship, but solidarity. Some of us celebrated Mother's Day this year mm -hmm. uh, with the National Mama's Bailout. And uh, I want to talk about Color of Change's work on the criminal justice system from police violence to sentencing to incarceration private prisons, um, but also the bail industry. So the bail industry, we recently released a report with ACLU um, called Selling Off Our Freedom that looked at the for-profit bail industry, a, um, a, a billion-dollar industry that um, really profits off of the pain of in communities and, and, and basically extracts resources from poor folks and folks who are targeted by the criminal justice system. The bail industry, many people think of local bail bonds as sort of the face of it, but actually there's big insurance companies that back this industry who are actually making the big money. Many of these companies keep their um, money offshore. They are foreign companies sometimes. They um, have set up their own laws through ALEC and other um, entities and, um, and really make a, really make um, a ton of money off of this and also pay for the lobbying that's been done to keep bail reform in place. We have a system in this country where you are better off being guilty and rich than innocent and poor because when you are arrested for something and if you don't have the money to pay, you are given an option to take a plea, whether you did it or not. And if you don't take a plea, um, you can be behind bars for a long period of time. And we consistently see these major, very visible stories like Khalif Browder, um, um, you know, who died, who, you know, who, who committed suicide but was in Rikers Island for a very long time. Sandra Bland yes. in Texas. Sandra right? Bland in Texas. These are both two examples of, of bail being set very high. Communities not being able to pay, families not being able to pay, and as a result, um, um, tragedies happen. 
we have a system or supposed to have a system where you're innocent until proven guilty. But the way our for-profit bail system works and the lobbying that's done behind it makes it anything but that. I think the Ferguson Commission took on the issue of municipal debt. Well, the fines and fees situation in cities around this country, the regressive taxes that fines and fees are, that basically um, place a deep burden on covering the tax burden of a city um, um, off of the, the, the most vulnerable um, people, the most targeted folks, that um, is an ongoing um, problem. And, it, and it, it, it aligns directly with the the tax breaks that the wealthiest Americans have gotten. So we give tax breaks at the top. We shift the tax burden through fines and fees and tickets to um, low-income folks, criminalize people in the process, and we create a hostile climate where people can never get ahead, where communities can never be fully whole. You fought to protect net neutrality when it was first under attack several years ago, and then you framed it as a civil rights issue the fight is back on under Trump's FCC. And I wonder if you could talk about what you're doing now and what would be the practical impact of the reversal of net neutrality on Color of Change's work. Well, not just on Color of Change's work, but on um, our ability to be visible and heard broadly. Um, and so for, for black people and black communities, and then specifically for the work, it would mean that some information would get relegated to slow lanes and some information get, get relegated to fast lanes. The, the short of that is, is that, um, signing onto the internet and trying to access certain information um, that is not um, in service of major internet service providers like Verizon and um, Comcast um, will be increasingly challenging. And we've already seen these major telecom companies block information or slow down information in the past when we didn't have Title II protections. And so this is not just sort of like a, um, a theory that's in our heads because, you know, we're paranoid, but it's actually played itself out that major corporations will block things that are not in their interest. And if we don't protect um, the Internet to be as powerful a tool um, for the next billion people that get on it as it was for the first billion people, both here and abroad, um, then we will limit the type of mobility both politically and socially and economically, that is at the heart of what we want from vibrant democracies. When we started, you talked about how every American's fate is wrapped up in racial justice and black liberation here in the United States. And I wonder what gives you hope in these times, in this Trump era? Well, what gives me hope is the people who are taking action in new and powerful ways, standing up and putting their bodies on the line. You know, I've been given hope since the, really since um, the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the ways in which people are, a new generation of people are standing up and pushing back and changing the narrative and changing the dialogue. And Trump does represent um, a horrific authoritarian um, disaster, right? It, it is not, I am not underscoring it, but it also, he's also a recognition of the progress that we've achieved. He's a recognition that, um, our opponents have seen our progress and they're pushing back as well. And, um, and it, for me, I wake up every day with a recognition that, um, at Color of Change, um, we're winning on a bunch of issues, and we're shifting not just the long game in Hollywood um, around what we see on TV that will shape um, 
the um, ways in which we experience and talk about issues for years to come. But we're building the type of power right now locally and hopefully nationally, whether it's through our district attorney work, which um, um, just this past election cycle, we kicked out six district attorneys that didn't care about black lives and put in people who ran on reform platforms, engaging over through our political action committee, engaging over 3000 volunteers to do 1.5 million voter contacts. On, in district attorney races and places where they didn't even live. Now we've got district attorneys all around the country calling us, asking us sort of what platforms, what are the issues that are most important to you? Changing the landscape just recently, and I'll end here, is the Philadelphia district attorney race where the community came together and we mobilized in this last primary. And the candidate that we pushed through was a candidate no one believed could win, Larry Krasner, who was the lawyer for the Occupy movement and the Black Lives Matter movement in Philadelphia, who's going to go on to be the next district attorney of Philadelphia. Like that, for me, the type of local power, the type of translating movement energy, the Black Lives Matter movement energy, the movement energy around criminal justice into electoral power into changing the rules is at the heart of what we do here. Um, and it's the heart of why I can remain confident that we will win. Well, Color of Change is a, a guiding light. It always has been, or since your early days, but especially in these times. Uh, our listeners can find you at colorofchange.org. And, and Twitter at Color of Change. We all know all the Color of Change <laughs> platforms, and you can find me at Rashad Robinson on Twitter. And um, follow us, join us, um, stand with us, fight with us. Rashad, thanks for taking the time to talk thanks with for us. That does it for this episode of The Resistors. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Rashad and the whole Color of Change team. You can connect with them at colorofchange.org and on Twitter and everywhere else with the handle at Color of Change. You can also listen to more episodes of The Resistors on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresistors.co.